David Kurtzer has studied and written about Italy, the Catholic Church, Nazism, communism, and fascism for over 40 years. His latest of 13 books is about the secret history of Pius XII, Mussolini, and Hitler. It's titled The Pope at War. In 2020, Pius XII's archives were finally opened in the Vatican. Brown University professor Kurtzer, according to Random House, his publisher, paints a new dramatic portrait of what the Pope did and did not do as World War II enveloped the European continent and the Nazis began their systematic mass murder of the Jews. David Kurtzer, at the very end of your book, almost the last paragraph, second to last paragraph, you talk about somebody by the name of Lieutenant Morris Kurtzer. Who was he, and why did you kind of tell us about that at the very end? Well, Morris Kurtzer was my father, and he's uh, perhaps the reason I became interested in this as a from the time I was a child, I heard stories of his wartime experience. He was a rabbi, and he was a Jewish chaplain with the U.S. Army in World War II, and with the U.S. troops that landed at Anzio, uh, which was in early 1944. They were sent there to try to break the German hold on Rome, which, uh, together with other Allied troops, they did at the beginning of uh, June 1944, so a few months later. So I grew up hearing stories about his experience in the war, and particularly in Italy, and with, and more than anything else, really, the dramatic liberation of Rome. And, of course, coming from a Jewish point of view, from the Jewish chaplain, the freedom for the Jews who, over the previous nine months of German occupation, had been subject to being sent off to Auschwitz and death. So how much of that, did the stories that he told you, uh, made an impact on you? Can you remember when it started? Well, he even wrote a book, actually, that was, uh, I was born in 1948, and the book, I think, was published the year before I was born. Uh, and the book was called With an H on My Dog Tag. Back then, I'm not sure today uh, what the, the U.S. Army does, but back then, as indications of religion on the dog tag for Jews, it was H for Hebrew so his book, with an H on my dog tag, was about his wartime experiences. Uh, unfortunately, one of the things I, I discovered a little bit later, that my, my uh, mother, who was, uh, of course, uh, nervously uh, waiting word of his whereabouts, which he wasn't allowed to tell her when he was at Anzio at the beachhead, uh, did receive letters. Uh, but as uh, he prepared his book, he cut them up into segments, which he put on three by five or four by six cards, uh, to organize for his book. So we no longer ha even have his letters, but we do have that book. But as I was growing up, I heard uh, stories. I mean, maybe the one I um, most recall is when he was conducting that first service for the Jews in the Friday. I think liberation came on a Sunday, early June 1944. Uh, the Jews had been in hiding. A couple thousand Jews of Rome had been deported to Auschwitz and their death. Uh, the Jews came to this service, which he co-conducted with the chief rabbi in Rome at the what's called the Grand Temple of, of Rome. And, of course, the uh, Roman Jews who were there were looking around to see which of their relatives of their friends had survived. Uh, and one uh, American GI, there were also a couple hundred Jewish American GIs there, came up to him before the service and explained that he was actually a Jew from Rome who with the racial laws, the anti-Semitic laws that had been put in effect in the late 30s, had been sent by his family to New York, uh, had subsequently enlisted in the U.S. Army, was with the U.S. troops that liberated Rome, but now was uh, worried that his mother might not have survived. Perhaps she was one of the ones who had been sent to Auschwitz. And so I asked my father, could he make an announcement to ask for uh, whether his mother was present? Uh, there were over a thousand people there. Uh, my father said, well, he couldn't do that because there were so many cases um, and it would interfere with the service. But if the soldier in his American uniform stood next to my father at the beginning of the service on the, uh, at the altar, uh, he was sure that his, this soldier's mother would recognize him if she were there. 
And in fact, as the service was about to begin, there was a shriek from the uh, congregation, and it was this uh, soldier's mother who came racing up and embraced him. So one of my earlier recollections is a uh, drawing that some artists at the time had done of my father standing there in his uh, soldier's uniform next to this younger soldier who's being embraced by this older woman, his mother. So how much of your writing, and I counted 13 books, including this one, and maybe more, um, did your father get a chance to read? Well, sadly, my father died in 1983. And um, my books, although I've worked in Italy, and certainly his influence in, in my decision to work in Italy and working on questions of politics and religion in Italy, uh, I've done this throughout my career. But I only turned to subjects that also related to the Jews in Italy uh, after, after his death. And so the first book I really published related to this was a book called The Kidnapping of Edgardo Mortara, and that was a number of years after his death. That book, by the way, was supposed to be made into a movie by Steven Spielberg. Has that ever gotten there yet? No. Uh, sadly, it keeps being uh, postponed. There's a wonderful screenplay for it written by Tony Kushner. And Tony and I are in regular conversation, and we're still hoping that Spielberg will make the film. Uh, but it keeps being postponed. Before we get to Pope Pius XII, let me ask you briefly about Pope Pius IX that you wrote about. Why did you write about him? When did he live and what impact did he have on this story? Well, Pope Pius IX uh, could be said to be the most consequential pope or papacy in at least modern church history. He was also uh, reigned the longest of any pope in, in history uh, from in the mid-19th century. He became pope in 1846 when Italy was still a patchwork of different states. I mean, most people seem to think of Italy as having been around for hundreds of years, but Italy is a modern nation state, only uh, dates to 1861. Uh, before that, the uh, peninsula of Italy was divided into all sorts of different states, but right along the middle of it, blocking any potential unification were the papal states, which for a thousand years had been ruled by a pope. And it was under uh, Pope Pius IX that the emerging Italian nation and its military conquered the uh, papally ruled uh, papal states, including Rome. Uh, and the Pope pronounced himself a prisoner of the Vatican and called for excommunicating all the leaders of Italy. This was all the, also the Pope who uh, called for what came to be known as the First Vatican Council and had it pronounce the principle of papal infallibility, which before that had not been an official principle of the Catholic Church. Pope Pius XI, you wrote about. What was his impact on all this? Well, I wrote a book called The Pope and Mussolini, which came out, I think, in 2014, uh, which was subsequent to the opening of those archives by the Vatican for that papacy. Uh, the significance there is Pius XI came to power, came to the papacy in 1922, the same year that Mussolini uh, became the head of the Italian government. And it was Pius XI who crafted basically a deal with uh, Mussolini. Mussolini, who didn't have a religious bone in his body, but saw the advantage to him of having an ally in the church in a deeply Catholic uh, Italian country. And so, uh, although he initially had some suspicions about Mussolini, uh, Pius XI was willing to make a deal. And uh, the result was, among other things, the establishment of Vatican City as a sovereign entity, uh, and also the ending of the separation of church and state in Italy, which had been one of the founding principles of the Italian nation uh, several decades earlier. Can you explain this? Uh, my count, and again, tell me if I'm wrong, that there have been about 266 popes in history, and that 217 of them have been Italians. Yes, well, uh, I'm not sure if your count's right. It sounds, sounds uh, right to me, but uh, until uh, John Paul II, the Polish Pope, uh, there hadn't been a, a non-Italian Pope for, for a number of centuries. And uh, certainly by uh, you know, the time we're talking about in the mid-20th century and, and up in, into the war years, the um, church was totally dominated by Italians and the Curia, which is the central administration of, of the uh, church, uh, led by a couple of dozen cardinals, 
uh, was almost totally Italian. So you had Italian popes and Italian uh, cardinals running the church. So it was very much an Italian affair. After I read your book and preparing to chat with you about this, I took out a piece of paper and I put on that paper in the middle Pope Pius Twelfth, and then around it I put Germany on the left, Italian in the center, Italy in the center, Russia on the right, and then at the top I went Nazism, Fascism, Communism, and at the bottom United States of America and Capitalism. The reason I mention this is in order to understand what was going on, I want to ask you first, if you are Pope Pius XII sitting in the Vatican, number one, how big is the Vatican? Not the structure, but the city or the nation state or city state. And um, what does the Pope see back in World War II in 1939? Well, Vatican City itself is you know, postage stamp in size. It's a little bit over 100 acres. Um, the Pope is there surrounded, as we're talking by Italians, there are about 24 cardinals of the Curia, which makes up the central administration of the Vatican. 23 of the 24 are Italian, one is French. Uh, he himself is Roman. Uh, he's from a what's called the black aristocracy, the elites who in Rome were uh, closest to the popes over the uh, decades and over the centuries. Uh, both his father and his uh, father's father were closely identified with the popes of the time. And he had a kind of meteoric uh, career in, in, the, uh, in the church. He never had a pastoral role. He, from early on, entered the uh, central administration as secretary of state. He had spent 12 years as papal nuncio or papal ambassador to uh, Germany. So from 1917 for the last days of World War I, until 1929, he had actually been in Germany, became fluent in German, was very close to the uh, Catholic German elite, especially the conservative elite, in 1939. So he's someone who um, is quite well-versed in the world politics as a result of this experience. He's also very bright. He speaks several languages. Um, he can read the press in, in, in German, in, in um, English, French, and so on. So he, of course, is well aware of the critical situation facing the world and facing the church in 1939. He becomes pope in early March 1939, shortly before the Germans invade Czechoslovakia. Uh, and, of course, uh, a few months later, September 1st, is when the Germans invade Poland, uh, which is normally the date given to the beginning of World War II. Uh, so he sees a world in, in crisis, and he is uh, deeply concerned about how to protect the church. So as he looks over toward Germany, back to where, did, didn't he also serve in Bavaria as a, uh, in, a, in a role for about six, seven years? Before? Yes, that's right. When I say he spent 12 years as papal nuncio in Germany, actually the first uh, several years were spent in Munich. At that time, there was a, uh, a nunciatur. Uh, based in, in Munich in, in Bavaria. And then in the mid-20s, he moved to Berlin, where he became the uh, nuncio to the central uh, government. And this, of course, was a number of years before Hitler comes to power. But he was in, in Munich uh, in the early days of the uh, the Beer Hall uh, putsch of, uh, of Hitler. And uh, Munich was Hitler's headquarters at that time as well. First, define, if you can... Nazism. <laughs> well, Nazism, of course, is short for National Socialism and was the doctrine of, um, of Hitler and uh, Hitler's party. Hitler, uh, in the aftermath of, of World War I, there were several uh, kind of contestants in, among the super right-wing groups in, uh, forming in Germany. National Socialism under Hitler's leadership was one it would eventually win out among all the other right-wing groups. It uh, was based on a, a deeply nationalist theory, a theory that uh, World War I had been a, um, a, a time of betrayal when the uh, German army was uh, betrayed, uh, when it should have gone on to victory, uh, when the Versailles Treaty that uh, brought an end to it uh, was totally unfair, and that uh, the 
German greatness had to be restored. And of course, that the great enemies, well, were two, were Jews and the communists. Is there any doubt that Pius XII would have known how Hitler thought in those days when he was in that country? And would he have known him? He did not know him personally. Uh, perhaps he saw him somewhere, but uh, he had no contact. He certainly would have had no love for Hitler or his uh, party. Uh, the, he was close to, the Pope was close to various um, conservative uh, Catholic elites. Uh, but from his point of view, Hitler would have been seen as a kind of common rabble rouser. Going to Italy, what's the difference between Nazism and fascism? Well, from the Pope's point of view, there's a huge difference. Um, and uh, so there, there are kind of two questions, but in terms of the Pope, and I think this is a common mistake people make. They think that the attitude of the Pope of the Church uh, toward the two totalitarianisms was the same. It was not at all. The Italian um, fascism, Italian fascism had made this deal with the Vatican, with the Catholic Church, such that the Italian state sometimes this is uh, referred to by uh, historians as a clerico-fascist state. Um, every fascist group had uh, the youth groups or adult groups uh, or militia groups had a Catholic priest as a chaplain, and uh, the clear Catholic clergy were given positions of honor. So um, this was very different than the situation in Germany and with Hitler with, with uh, Nazism, where from the uh, Pope's point of view and the Vatican's point of view, uh, the attempt was being made to uh, whittle away the influence of the Catholic Church uh, and instead, for example, replace Catholic parochial schools for children with state schools that would, instead of teaching uh, Catholic religion, uh, teach the idolatry of the state and the uh, doctrine of Aryan supremacy. So you said Mussolini was a head uh, prime minister in Italy during the time. How well did Pope Pius XII know Mussolini? Well, he didn't have uh, personal relations with him. Um, in fact, he never, I don't think he ever really uh, met him when he was Pope, probably because Mussolini, didn't, uh, he only met once with uh, a Pope while he was head of the Italian government, and that was in 1932. Um, he didn't like uh, being seen next to the Pope because he was afraid it would kind of eclipse his own charisma and his own magnificence. Uh, so he never felt comfortable around, actually around any clergy, let alone Pope's. Um, Pius XII visited uh, kind of famously the Italian king not long after becoming pope at the end of 1939, but never paid a visit to, uh, to Mussolini. By the way, what year did the Vatican become totally independent as a, its own country? It was 1929. This, uh, the so-called Lateran Treaties between the fascist government, actually directly negotiated by Mussolini himself uh, with the Vatican, led to the, uh, the establishment in 1929 of Vatican City. So in 1939, when Hitler invades Poland, a very Catholic country, what does the Pope have to say about this? I think this is one of the common errors people make in the controversy over the silence of the Pope during the Holocaust, the Pope's failure ever to condemn the uh, Nazi attempt to exterminate the Jews of Europe. Because the controversy over the silence of the Pope during World War II really began with the uh, German invasion of Poland, which, as you mentioned, was a heavily Catholic country. And not just that, but that among the, um, the enemies that, uh, that Hitler and the Germans saw in their invasion was the Catholic clergy in Poland, which was seen as a font of, of support for Catholic-Polish Catholic, uh, nationalism. And so in uh, the September 1939 uh, Nazi invasion of Poland, uh, among people who were seized were Polish priests, hundreds of whom were sent to concentration camps. And uh, at that, this time, the Catholic uh, hierarchy, as well as the uh, political leadership of Poland, began to plead with the Pope to speak out and condemn the German attack on Poland and the Pope refused to do so. You pointed out that the curia that led the church with the Pope 
had 23 of 24 Italians on it back in those days. What was their attitude toward the Jews? Well, the church had for centuries um, demonized Jews, and church publications, including those overseen by the Vatican in the decades uh, preceding World War II, uh, were filled with vilification of Jews who were seen as uh, seeking world domination and um, not being loyal to the countries in which they lived and so forth. So there were, uh, I mean, in general, obviously, there are some exceptions, but in general, views toward Jews, and uh, this is how speaking until really uh, the radical change the church saw with the Second Vatican uh, Council initially under Pope John XXIII, who was Pius XII's successor. Uh, in these years, uh, the attitudes toward Jews was very negative. So as I look at my piece of paper, on the right-hand side is communism and, of course, Stalin. Back in 1939, as the Pope sits in the Vatican looking around the world and toward Soviet, the Soviet Union, what's he seeing there and what's his attitude about Stalin and the communists? Yes, well, this is, of course, very important to the Pope and looms large in his thinking, the fear of communism and the spread of communism. Uh, you have to realize that it was only in 1917 that communism came to power with the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia and you know, spread through the um, Soviet Union. Uh, and the uh, communist parties, of course, were organizing throughout uh, Western Europe, including in, in Italy, uh, before fascism anyway, uh, so that uh, the Pope, Pius XII, had kind of been socialized into seeing communism as a great enemy of the Catholic Church as this atheistic uh, theory of government that would uh, take away the ability of the church to perform its functions as the uh, church saw it. So this this would loom very large in his thinking uh, throughout his papacy and certainly throughout the years of uh, World War II. So again, if on the definition side, what give me another uh, little bit on the difference between very Nazism, fascism, and communism. If you lived under those three isms. What are the primary differences? Yes, on the one hand, those three are uh, are sometimes put together by scholars and others as uh, three variants of totalitarianism, uh, referring to the fact that these are not only authoritarian governments, but ones which seek to control every aspect of people's lives, even various private aspects, and not being a difference between really the public and the private, all should be under the control of the state. Uh, But... Of course, there are considerable differences. On the one hand, communism being the, at least in theory, based on Marxist principles of the uh, of, of the dictatorship of the proletariat, of the need for um, doing away with inequalities in society and uh, putting all a major ownership under the uh, state. Uh, the uh, of course, the both fascism and Nazism grew up in reaction to communism. I mean, if you think of this, uh, Mussolini comes to power in 1922. That's only five years after the Bolshevik Revolution in the Soviet Union in Russia. And uh, that was not a minor factor in in Mussolini's appeal and his ability to come to power. Uh, The difference, so the question, I guess, would be more, what would be the difference between fascism and Nazism? Uh, Partly the Nazism is based uh, on this theory of Aryan supremacy uh, racism of that sort would only come to a fascism relatively late in 1938. Remember, Mussolini comes to power in 1922. Initially, uh, Jews are not seen as a particular uh, concern or enemy of fascism. And in fact, in Italy, uh, roughly as many Jews proportion-wise in Italy uh, became fascist members as did the Catholics in Italy. Uh, but of course, right from the beginning, uh, from when uh, when the, the uh, Hitler comes to power in 1933 in Germany, uh, the Jews are seen as the enemy, and uh, Jews begin to fear for their lives and begin to try to flee those who can. I, I'm a numbers guy, and so I look at the population in Germany back in those days of 69 million, population in Italy, 45 million, <clears throat> population in the Soviet Union, 205 million. 
population in the Vatican, 800, population in the United States, 130 million. The reason um, that I ask you this is, as you know, uh, there are only now only 15 million Jews in the entire world. Back then, there may have been a few more before the Holocaust. But what, what have you discovered in your studies all these years about why people hated Jews? Well, I mean, I think talking about numbers is significant to, to understand the Holocaust, World War II, and the countries we're talking about. I mean, uh, Poland, for example, was about 10% Jewish. There were over 3 million Jews in Poland. Uh, Germany was perhaps 1% Jewish. So, and um, Italy was only one-tenth of 1% was Jewish. So, you know, the question of why uh, in these countries, in a country like Italy, uh, or even Germany, where 1% of the population is Jewish, uh, Jews could be seen as uh, such great threats to the public order and the, uh, the commonweal. Uh, but as you suggest, anti-Semitism has been around for many centuries. And uh, partly it seems to be the difficulty people have of dealing with otherness. Um, in Europe, uh, once uh, Christianity became uh, dominant, the notion that there could be another religious group was one that uh, many found it very difficult to accept. Uh, also, people seem to have a need for a scapegoat, and Jews have uh, become a convenient scapegoat for various social ills over the uh, centuries. I mean, the, uh, the apparent conflict in the notion that Jews were being attacked both for being agents of communism and being fonts of big capitalism uh, seems not to have bothered people at the time. They, these were um, you know, common beliefs. On my paper last, uh, and, and somewhat important, is the United States of America, FDR's president, capitalism is what the country's living by, and today the figures show that almost three-quarters of the Vatican's money comes from the United States that there are about 17% of the population of the United States that are Catholic. Uh, what is the Pope back then seeing when he looks across the Atlantic to the United States? Well, the Pope actually, um, as uh, he had been the Secretary of State or kind of the number two under his predecessor, Pius XI, and uh, just a couple of years or so before becoming Pope, or a little over a couple of years before, had actually traveled to the United States and spent a couple of months traveling around throughout the country and, in fact, meeting with uh, President Roosevelt. He uh, had various interests in maintaining good relationships with the American president, with Roosevelt, and uh, not least for reasons you allude to, namely that the Vatican financial support was coming primarily from Catholics in the United States. So when we talk about uh, the Pope's attitude during World War II, uh, and the kind of position he was willing to take, uh, certainly he didn't want to do anything that would antagonize American Catholics. Uh, so this certainly was was on his mind. And uh, he uh, thought of himself as having a, a very strong, good relationship with uh, President Roosevelt. And Roosevelt himself, uh, before just before the war uh, begins, uh, decides to send his own personal emissary to... Uh, to the Vatican, because at that time, the U.S. did not have diplomatic relations with the Holy See and hadn't for, for many uh, decades. The Protestants who dominated the um, Congress wouldn't allow it. Why do they call it the Holy See? <laughs> well, the see refers to the, the seat, uh, the pontifical throne, uh, the seat of the Pope. And uh, so, therefore, the, the Holy See refers to the Holy Throne, the Holy Seat. And this the seat of the church being at the in Rome. Where were you in March of 2020, the day that the Pope's archives were revealed? Yes, the there'd been pressure on the Vatican uh, because of the, largely because of the controversy over the silence of the Pope during the Holocaust. There'd been pressure for many decades for the Vatican to open its archives for World War II. Uh, this pressure had been resisted. Uh, finally, Pope Francis, as part of his uh, more general uh, call for transparency, I think, uh, authorized the opening, which finally did open March 2nd of 2020. Uh, and I was there. I was planning to be there for several months. Uh, I'd rented an apartment for several months. 
but and it was very exciting to be there that first week that they opened those archives with its millions of pages of documents uh, that scholars could see for the first time. Uh, but it was that Friday that they announced while I was there that they were about to close them because COVID, uh, the epicenter being at least the European and Western epicenter being in Italy, uh, was uh, raging and uh, the archives were being closed until further notice. So what did you do? When did you get to those archives? <laughs> well, so I'd spent that first week there with my, I have a uh, associate uh, fellow historian who works with me, who fortunately is Roman, and this would come in very handy because uh, several days later, the prime minister, we were watching television that evening on, in our apartment in Rome, and the prime minister came on and said, announced a lockdown that we, no one was allowed to leave their homes uh, except to buy groceries and go to the pharmacy until further notice. So at that point, we realized that not being able to leave our fairly small apartment and uh, with the archives perhaps not opening for many months, there wasn't much point in remaining. So we got in what we thought at the time might have been the last plane out of the country to return to the U.S. Uh, fortunately, though, they uh, did reopen those archives in June of 2020 and my uh, associate, Roberto Benedetti, I was able to return and essentially we'd be in contact every day by, by email and uh, by Zoom. Uh, and as a result, he was able to um, have copied for me, digitized the several thousand pages of documents that were crucial to the writing of my book. I watched a documentary on the archives, and it gave the impression that you could only get something like three folders a day of material and that you weren't allowed in the archives and all that. Explain what that archive is like, and have you been inside it? Oh, yes. Well, uh, first of all, these are archives. I mean, what they've just made available are the papers for the papacy of Pius the Twelfth, but I've been working in them for decades on uh, previous papacies uh, for other books that I've been working on. But uh, there are actually a number of different archives in the Vatican. They each had come under separate administration and have separate procedures. Uh, and the biggest one used to, until uh, Pope Francis renamed it about three years ago, used to be called the Vatican Secret Archive. Uh, but he apparently thought that the notion of secret archive was giving the wrong impression. And so renamed it the Vatican Apostolic Archive. Uh, so that's the largest archive there. Uh, right in the midst of Vatican City. Uh, but there's also a separate archive, for example, for the Secretary of State of the Vatican, which is very important for these topics. Uh, I also work in the uh, archive of the what had been the Inquisition. It's now called the uh, Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. There are also important archives like the Jesuit archives that are just outside Vatican City, but not part of the Vatican itself. All these became available for the uh, war years for the first time. Uh, two years ago, or in March 2020. Uh, so uh, it is true, each one has different uh, rules. And the, for example, the Inquisition Archive uh, recently been unable to get anything copied. Uh, one common trait all of them have is you're not allowed to uh, photograph anything yourself. If you work in the Italian State Archives, for example, you can bring your, your camera or your iPhone and take pictures of documents. That's severely prohibited in all the Vatican archives. And as you mentioned, they also limit uh, how much material you can see in a day uh, so that the limit in the main archive is uh, three um, folders in the morning and two in the afternoon. The problem is some of these folders might have one page in them. And uh, it's uh, so you can in some mornings go there and open your, your three folders for the day uh, for, for the morning and, and uh, be done in half an hour and then just have to wait to the afternoon and hope that your two folders in the afternoon will have more material. You were working on this book before these archives were open. My question to you is, what changed once you got to see this material? And what, when we read your book, is new? And did any of it surprise you? Yes, I think there were some shocking surprises, even though uh, I think one thing that is worth saying, given we've been concentrating on the Vatican archives, that if you want to understand the history of what the Pope did and didn't do, why he did it, what was going on in the Vatican during World War II, it's not enough just to look at Vatican archives as rich as they are. Uh, one needs to look, as I have, at archives in uh, the Italian state archives, the fascist government archives, the 
uh, German archives, the French archives, the British archives, American archives. So I'd done all that archival work before the opening of the Vatican archives. And so the Vatican archives for me was the kind of last piece of the puzzle. Uh, the advantage of the Vatican archives is you find out, uh, among other things, the kind of advice the Pope is getting behind the scenes from the people closest to him in the Vatican itself. Um, but, you know, just to give one example of, of kind of shocks, uh, for me, probably the biggest one uh, that I unearthed was that within five weeks of uh, Pacelli becoming Pope, as Pius the Twelfth, Hitler saw an opportunity to um, come to an understanding with the Pope with the Vatican, seeing the new Pope as a more sympathetic figure than his predecessor, who had been in his last months quite openly anti-Nazi. Um, and uh, arranged to send his uh, Hitler arranged to send a secret emissary to begin negotiations with the Pope. That emissary himself is a rather shadowy uh, figure. He's a, um, a prince, actually a great grandson of Queen uh, Victoria of uh, England, and um, she and he um, began these negotiations. Uh, within a couple of months of the Pope becoming Pope. And uh, we amazingly, and this is you know, the most shocking finding I think I uh, ran into in the Vatican, and kind of amazed that before my book, no one else came across it and published it before my book came out, but uh, I was fortunate in that. Um, namely, that the Pope kept a German prelate sort of hidden in the next room and kept a record, their conversation, the conversation between this uh, Nazi prince who the, was the emissary that Hitler had sent to the Pope and the Pope, their conversation was in German and this German prelate kept a basically uh, a log of the conversation, a, a full uh, transcript of their conversation. So we now find these in the newly opened archives. If you go to the Pope Pius XII <clears throat> and you go to Wikipedia and I assume as I Longtime college professor, when I say Wikipedia, you, you didn't wince, but I wouldn't be surprised if you did. But I want to read you a paragraph or a couple of sentences that they have up to near the beginning of Pope Pius XII and just get your reaction as to the accuracy of this. Pius employed diplomacy to aid the victim of the Nazis during the war and through directing the church to provide discreet aid to Jews and others saved hundreds of thousands of lives. Yes, well, the papal apologists are very busy uh, defending Pius XII, who's a big hero to the right wing of the church for various reasons. And so there is this uh, hagiography uh, about Pius XII. Uh, of course, these are the same people who are trying to have him declared a saint. Uh, this is totally misleading. And for, for many reasons. So the defense, I mean, they can't deny the fact that the Pope never spoke out against the Holocaust as it was uh, taking place, even though it, it's known that uh, he was well aware of what was going on. Um, so they uh, de defend him saying, oh, he could be more somehow more effective by not speaking out, by helping Jews behind the scenes. Uh, but this is uh, wrong for, for many reasons. First of all, 60% um, of the Jews of Europe, more or less, were murdered during the Holocaust. And uh, who was it who was murdering these Jews? They weren't people who thought they were pagans. They were people who thought they were Christians for the great majority. And of those, uh, many were, were Roman Catholics, perhaps close to half, uh, in the case of the Third Reich. Uh, so the Pope, in not uh, denouncing the murder of small Jewish children, Jewish elderly people, and so on, um, by Catholics as it was occurring. And not just that, but the, uh, the church, his predecessors, anti-Jewish pronouncements and uh, policies were being cited by the Nazis and by, certainly by the Italian fascists to justify their treatment of the Jews. And uh, the Pope never spoke out against this either. So... Um, the, you know, what little was done behind the scenes uh, could uh, hardly, it seems to me, compensate for his silence. And uh, this really came, comes to a head with uh, what happened October 16, 1943, with the roundup of the, by the SS of the Jews of Rome. 
there. This was uh, very dramatic. This came a month or so, a little over a month after the Germans occupied Rome. They sent uh, 350 or so SS uh, with lists of all the Jews in Rome going house to house, trying to round them all up. Uh, we're able to get over a thousand of them, put them in a uh, holding cells in a military college that basically borders Vatican City, kept them there for two days. Uh, and the Pope says nothing publicly. Uh, two days later, uh, over a thousand Jews from Rome are then placed on trains in Rome while the Pope says nothing and are sent directly to Auschwitz, where most are sent directly the day of their arrival to the gas chambers. I'm going to walk into sticky territory here, as you'll see. <clears throat> but from all your studies, I'd like to get your reaction. Jesus, when he was on the earth for 33 years, was known as a humble man, walking about just ordinary people and doing all kinds of things. Why is it that the church over these many years has developed to having a single person at the top of the church who rides around in a special chair carried by the guards of the Vatican. People bow down, kiss his ring, and idolize him. And how did that happen if Jesus is at the heart of what people believe about in the Catholic Church? Oh, well, <laughs> my expertise is kind of 19th and 20th century, so uh, <laughs> now I, I, I really, uh, that seems like a loaded question to me. Uh, so I, I think I'll uh, stay away from that. I mean, clearly, there, when one talks about the church, uh, when, and even when you talk about the Vatican, one thing I've learned is these are very heterogeneous <laughs> kinds of institutions. And so uh, there are uh, people who, of course, uh, have very different ideas of what it means to be Catholic, what it means to be Christian. Uh, and the papacy, I mean, see, certainly one thing one could say about this from a kind of historical point of view is that this is a very long-term trend in the church to centralize power in the Vatican in Rome and then in the person of the Pope. Uh, this didn't just happen overnight. And there were, uh, I mentioned earlier, the uh, First Vatican Council in 1869, 1870, where papal infallibility was proclaimed. Well, there were a lot of bishops who were opposed to this at the time and thought that uh, Rome was making a kind of power grab, that the abilities, uh, the independence that bishops traditionally had throughout Christendom was being taken away uh, by an attempt by the Vatican, by the central church, and by the popes uh, to uh, take on all power themselves. So this has long been a kind of bone of contention within the church. Why do you think there's never been a... United States Cardinal made Pope? Well, because of the political power of the United States, um, you know, until the 20th century, the U.S. was seen as kind of almost missionary territory from the church point of view and from the organization of the church. This is how it was dealt with, uh, along with, you know, African and Asian states. Um, but then by the time of uh, certainly World War One when uh, the U.S. becomes a, a dominant power and the economically U.S. becomes uh, dominant as well. Um, it, the U.S. is just seen as, as too influential. So having an American pope uh, would uh, certainly in recent decades uh, be seen as uh, inappropriate and uh, kind of threatening in a way too much identifying the church with the U.S. Even though... As we were talking, saying the uh, American Catholics provide a, a great deal of the financial support of the Vatican, and kind of curiously, the center right now it seems of the uh, right wing movement within the Catholic Church is in the U.S. rather than in Europe. Describe Pope Pius the Twelfth as a person. What was he like? Well, he was ascetic. He was uh, thin, tall, relatively tall. He. Um, uh, ate modestly. He, although, as we were as referring to, he felt it incumbent on him as Pope to bask in the majesty of his office and be carried around in his uh, his traveling throne, the Sedia Gestatoria, uh, to great fanfare and so on. Um, he was uh, a kind of private man. He um, was. Um, he was a diplomat, so he was very careful about uh, the words he spoke to people. 
he didn't lose his temper, unlike his predecessor, who famously did, Pius XI. Um, and he also, in the privacy of his own apartments, uh, had, a, had a series of canaries he kept. And uh, even when he shaved, he would keep a, a canary on one of his shoulders or one of his hands. Uh, so this is the kind of person he was. What about, and I don't ask this for what could be uh, a nefarious reason, what about his housekeeper? Because you talked about her more than once and the importance that she ended up having to him. Yeah, so his, uh, there was a nun uh, known as Pascalina Leonard, was her name. Uh, when he first went to uh, Germany as nuncio, um, he needed someone to take care of the, the household of the nunciatur and ended up somehow finding this uh, German um, nun, who at that time was very young, was in her early 20s, I think. And she came and joined him. And then when, uh, over a dozen years later, he is called to the Vatican to become Secretary of State, to become Cardinal and Secretary of State, is 1929, 1930, he decides uh, he can't do without her, and so she moves to the Vatican and takes over his household along with some other German nuns. This leads to, uh, I wouldn't say scandal, but leads to a lot of rumors, uh, salacious and otherwise, uh, none of which I think, uh, at least the salacious ones, are, are not uh, founded on any reality that, that uh, I know about. Um, but he did, and she became his great defender, including... Uh, and she was resented, of course, partly for misogynist uh, reasons. In the, the Vatican, it is almost entirely male domain. So having a woman who was seen to some extent as having influence over the Pope uh, was resented by many of the people of the Vatican. How much of the archives have you still not had a chance to read and go over about Pope Pius XII? Well, there are uh, millions of pages of documents, and now many of them, first of all, the Pope, uh, Pius XII was Pope until 1958. So if we're talking about World War I, many of the documents of the millions, many uh, million have to do with the period after the war. Uh, and even for the war years, a lot of the documents are not of uh, direct interest. Uh, but one of the uh, things that uh, you need to keep in mind is not all the documents have yet been fully processed. So, for example, the um, apostolic delegate in Washington, that is the papal emissary to in the United States, uh, their files have only partially been processed and uh, partially even sent over from Washington to, uh, to the Vatican. So there are uh, many more pages of materials uh, yet to, to be read. I'm going to deviate considerably on this one because there is a, uh, a lot of reference to this one person in your book, Clara. Oh, Clara why, why did you write uh, so much about Clara and what impact did she have on this whole story? Well, Clara Pitacci was a young lover of Mussolini and uh, was his lover from um, about 1936 uh, until his death. In fact, he, she died, she shot along with him when he's executed by the partisans in uh, late April of 1945. She's just on staying with him and it is shot and uh, in a scene many people may remember having uh, seen a photo of uh, when their bodies are brought to Milan by the victorious uh, partisans. They're strung up by their feet uh, in a piazza, uh, one right next to the other. So Clara Patacci is strung up uh, alongside uh, Mussolini's corpse. Um, she, I th well, she's important, most of all, historically, I think, to the historian. I'm trying to understand this history because she kept thousands of pages of a diary of her uh, interaction with Mussolini, including every time they had sex, uh, she noted it in her diary. Uh, which was quite often, uh, but also his every call. And sometimes he would phone her 12 times a day. And one wonders how he ever got anything done, in fact, uh, sometimes. And uh, so this is very valuable, her comments. I mean, she basically would provide transcripts of what he was saying to her uh, as he kind of mouthed off about, including about Hitler and uh, the U.S. and French, but also about Italians and how lazy they were. Uh, so... 
Uh, aside from the fact that my editor at Random House said, Gee, where, where are all the women in your book? Because especially on the Vatican side, there's just not a whole lot of women. And uh, so uh, aside from that uh, interest, it really is um, helpful in understanding better the Mussolini side of the story. But you're talking about Mussolini heading up a Catholic country, Italy. He's married. He has, what, four children. Uh, you characterize his wife. Is it Rochelle? Is that the way you pronounce it? Uh, Raquel. Raquel. Um, what was that like? I mean, how much did the Italians know about her and her role with this, his mistresses and all that? Well, his wife, Raquel, was herself, she was kind of a childhood sweetheart. Uh, she was only semi-literate. She felt totally out of place in uh, you know, around the uh, aristocracy and the elite of government. I'd said she kept chickens in the backyard of their uh, their home in Rome, and uh, but she but her according to her daughter, she was the one who actually ruled their household. So she must uh, Mussolini had many lovers. It wasn't just uh, Clara Patacci. He had a series of lovers. In fact, he had a large number of sexual partners. He had many children uh, outside of marriage. Um, and for the most part, this was kept from the Italian population until relatively late uh, when he began to uh, be losing his grip on power in the 1940s, early 40s. Uh, it became more and more of a scandal. Um, but uh, his wife, Rachele, uh, stood by him to the end. We've known a lot in, in, the, in the years past about Hitler's control of the media. What about the Pope's control of the media when he was there for those 19 years? And also uh, Mussolini's control of the Italian media. Well, Mussolini totally controlled the Italian media after, um, well, after 1925, 1926. So it comes to power in 1922. The first few years are actually still other parties. There's still opposition press. Uh, but he's able to solidify his dictatorship really in the mid-1920s. After that, you could not publish any criticism of the government or anything that uh, they, the uh, Muslim didn't want to see published. Uh, one exception was actually the Vatican itself, because the uh, Vatican had its own daily newspaper, El Zoratore Romano, it's called, and that was not directly subject to uh, fascist censorship. However, if they wanted to sell copies of it in Italy, um, the, if they published things that the uh, that Mussolini didn't like, uh, he would basically arrange for basic for for fascist thugs to beat up vendors and seize and burn copies, uh, even of that Italian of that uh, publication of the Vatican. Describe Mussolini as a person. Uh, well, Mussolini, he was I think about uh, five foot six inches, uh, kind of barrel chested. Uh, in his very later years, he looked. Uh, rather sickly and, and frail, but uh, in, certainly in his heyday, he liked to uh, be seen in various athletic poses, driving his motorcycle with goggles, uh, riding his horse uh, on a ski slope with uh, bare-chested. Um, often uh, these photos wouldn't show him with skis because I don't think he knew how to ski, but he liked to <laughs> be photographed that way. So he liked to project this kind of he-man image. He'd uh, be photographed uh, Helping with harvest, uh, you know, getting the, the hay with pitchfork and this kind of thing. Uh, so this this was the the image. The and then uh, they would put various of his sayings throughout uh, the country on sides of barns and houses. Uh, the, he was known as the Duce, uh, which recalled part of what he tried to do was model himself on the ancient Roman uh, leaders and uh, kind of ancient Caesar. Uh, on the walls, they would have uh, writings like uh, Mussolini, Sempre uh, John, Mussolini is always uh, right, and, uh, and various kinds of uh, military slogans as well. So this was the, the image he tried to uh, portray. I want you to go back to the death of Mussolini, because Mussolini died within two days of Hitler uh, back in 1945. But you tell the story in your book exactly how they killed Mussolini and his friend Clara. How did that happen? Well, as the Allies were uh, moving rapidly north, finally they'd broken through. They'd been held up in the uh, mountains between 
uh, Florence and uh, Bologna in the winter of 44-45, but then in the spring they broke through as they were uh, approaching Milan in the north. Uh, Mussolini made the, the last kind of futile attempt to arrange some sort of deal that would save himself and his fascist cronies, but uh, at that point the Allies and the resistance in Italy was not willing to make any kind of deal other than call for unconditional surrender. So he ends up, just as the Allies are about to arrive in Milan, fleeing from Milan, and going north, apparently trying to get over the uh, border into, into Austria uh, or Switzerland, and he, um, he joins a um, German a group of soldiers that are, are fleeing and wears a disguise, wears sunglasses, and actually wears a German military uniform. Uh, that column of uh, German military is stopped by a group of partisans along Lake Como in the extreme north of the country, and uh, they recognize Mussolini. They are able to seize him, uh, but the local partisan leader is you know, shocked that he has Mussolini in his hands and doesn't know what to do with him. Uh, he also, they, they find Clara Patacci, his lover, with him, and so they have both of them. So the partisan leader sends word to Milan, to the leadership of the, the resistance, the Italian resistance, uh, the so-called Committee of National Liberation, to ask what, what is to be done with this man. And uh, the next day, they, he gets the reply, which is he should be executed on the spot. So they take out uh, Mussolini, and who at this point is kind of a pathetic figure, uh, and his young lover, she's now in her 30s, uh, and take them to a place along a wall, line them up, and uh, shoot them. Actually, Clara tries to uh, protect her uh, lover, but um, is unsuccessful, and they're both killed. The next day, they're brought down to Rome, to, excuse me, to Milan, where a group of other uh, fascist leaders, our bodies are taken, who've been similarly dispatched over the last day or so. Uh, and the crowd, the angry crowd there, spits at them, uh, hurls insults at their bodies, uh, in some cases actually shoots bullets into them, until it's decided to uh, lift them up by their feet from a scaffolding over actually a gas station in this piazza, uh, where uh, Mussolini, um, who's... Uh, who's bleeding and is uh, actually parts of his brain is coming out of his head as he's uh, being held up by his feet. Uh, and Clara Patacci, a priest, had sort of taken pity on, on her and uh, worried about her modesty uh, before she strung up, ties her dress around her legs so it won't you know, fall down and expose her private parts. By the way, I, I just want to... You know, given what you've had to say about Pope Pius Twelfth and all that, and we talked earlier about the, what the Catholic Church says uh, in referring to what you've been saying and others, I found, just if somebody's interested, a very strong defense of Pope Pius Twelfth on YouTube called Pope Pius Twelfth and the Holocaust 2018 for anybody that's interested in getting another view of this, which is very strongly pro Vatican, what's been the reaction to you and all of your books that you've written uh, by the Catholic Church, and have you been criticized because of your Jewishness? Well, um, when you say the Catholic Church, again, the Catholic Church is a very, it's very large, of course, but also a heterogeneous institution, and there are certainly those, um, including in the Vatican, who've told me how much they appreciate my work, and um, but that said, the, it's been, from my point of view, rather disappointing, the reaction of the Vatican to this latest book. Uh, it came out around the same time it came out in the U.S. In, in early June, came out in Italy, the Italian edition. And shortly after that, uh, the Vatican daily newspaper, uh, in something that was then picked up by the daily newspaper of the uh, hierarchy of the Catholic Church in, in Italy, published a full-page denunciation of the book. And uh, from my point of view, I wrote a response, but um, they, um, it was filled with misrepresentations. And uh, it just showed the inability or the refusal, really, of the Vatican to come to terms with this history. I think it, it's important when you say about the reaction of the Church to realize that the Roman Catholic Church in a number of European countries has begun to come to terms with this history. 
most recently, I think the German Episcopate, the uh, hierarchy of the Catholic Church in Germany, issued a statement, I think, a year or two ago, in which they um, recognized the fact that the Catholic clergy in Germany had supported the war, uh, had never denounced the the extermination of the uh, Jews of Europe being done by, by Germans at the time, and basically called for coming to terms with this and for forgiveness. Uh, the Neither the Vatican nor, for that matter, the Church in Italy has been willing to do anything like that. You mentioned earlier about Pope Pius XII, and the Church uh, is on the road to getting him sainthood, although he's not gotten there. But Montini, who was a cardinal and then the pope, and also Roncalli, who was a cardinal and the pope, both have been made saints. What's the holdup? I know there's a several-step process, and he's now venerable, whatever that means. Um, why no sainthood? Well, I mean, first of all, it is kind of interesting that um, all these 20th century popes are being made into saints because <laughs> for hundreds of years, this was not at all the practice. Uh, and uh, you know, very few popes had been made into saints over the last you know, three, four hundred years. Uh, so something you know changed in, in recent times. So now, almost if you're a pope and not made a saint, there must be something wrong with you. Um, that said, um, Pius XII is the hero of the conservatives within the Church. He's the last pope before the Second Vatican Council, which, from the point of view of uh, conservatives in the Church, at least a, a major wing of them. Uh, that's where the Vatican went wrong. And um, so what's held up, held him up, or his case for sainthood probably is his silence during the Holocaust and World War II, and which is why um, books like mine provoke such uh, you know, violent reactions from his defenders, because it's seen, I think, as uh, further holding up their attempts to have him declared a saint. The name of the book is The Pope at War, and the subtitle is The Secret History of Pius XII, Mussolini, and Hitler. Uh, David Kurtzer, how many years have you been associated with Brown University? Uh, well, when you say associate, I've been on the faculty of Brown University for 30 years, but I was actually an undergraduate there and then went away for uh, 23 years before I came back as a faculty member. And we're talking to you today in Maine. And you say you went to, uh, uh, taught at Bowdoin for a while up in Maine? Yes, the first 19 years of my career, uh, from the time I was a 25-year-old assistant professor, I was uh, at Bowdoin College, and then uh, in 1992 went to, to Brown University. But we've kept a house in Maine, and we still feel, uh, I'm looking out right now at uh, Tidal Cove that we're on, so it's kind of hard to duplicate this anywhere else. Certainly, with our temperatures here today of over 95 degrees. Um, what, what's next? Do you have another book out of all that you've learned uh, getting this book uh, out in the public? Well, I think in terms of um, pursuing this, this theme and these recently opened archives, uh, there are kind of two lines that I'm, I'm pursuing at the moment. I just got back, actually. Um, I spent the spring in, uh, in Rome working in Vatican archives, having completed uh, this book and looking forward to the next project. And one thing I've been looking at is the years immediately after the war, because uh, there was a great fear that the communists were going to, going to come to power in, in much of Western Europe, and especially in Italy. Uh, and so from an Italian point of view, these were very dramatic years where certainly the Vatican, but other uh, others in Italy were fearful that the communists would come to power. They were the one group that seemed to come out looking the best from the awful years of the war and of the fascist dictatorship. And so the story of how the Pope and the Vatican worked together, among other things, with American agents uh, and with the church in Italy to uh, prevent the communists from coming to power, I, I find quite interesting. This is also a time I was working in the Inquisition archives uh, where the, there was a debate which led to a 1949 um, declaration that uh, all communists are to be excommunicated by the by the Pope or by the Vatican, and uh, you know so this uh, there's a whole series of interesting issues there that I've been looking at. Uh, the other thing is the uh, Vatican recently um, made available online something that previously you had to be able to get to the Vatican archives to see, which is. The, the about 30,000 pages of documents of their so-called Jews file, 
which has to do with uh, pleas during World War II uh, or shortly before, during the racial laws, anti-Semitic laws in Italy and in Europe, uh, pleas from Jews for help from the Vatican. And this is part of the Vatican's attempt to uh, show that you know, they were working behind the scenes to help Jews despite their, their silence during the Holocaust. Um, it turns out that uh, probably 95% of these appeals are actually from Catholics, not Jews, but Catholics who are being considered uh, Jews by the state because they either descended from Jews or they had converted from Judaism. And uh, they're very revealing about what life was like in this period leading up to the Holocaust, during the Holocaust, uh, and what the Vatican was doing about all this. So I'm, uh, I've been reading through, making my way through those 30,000 pages of documents and uh, thinking of uh, writing something up. Go back to my numbers, eight, 8 billion people in the world, 1.3 to 4 billion are Catholics, and 15 million are Jews. Uh, keep those numbers in mind as we close out here. David Kurtzer, professor Brown University and author of some 13 books, and the latest is called The Pope at War. We thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.